Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. And remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child, his mother by night, and departed to Egypt. And remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod had died, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother, and he went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, (laughs) he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to a district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Let's pray. O God, we ask that you would speak through the preaching of your word, give life and light to our minds. Again, that your spirit would be glorified in working through us. That we would be his showpieces of his glory. And how we are transformed in his ministry by the word we pray for Christ's sake. Amen. I think most adults have had that moment at some point as they've grown where they realized, oh my goodness, mom and dad have this gigantic body of knowledge I wish I had understood. Perhaps it's the first job. Right? Yeah, you have that boss that you have to interact with, and it, it seems like the boss just does not understand common sense. You come home every day frustrated and say, like, Oh, how did mom and dad do it? 
How, how did they learn to function under crazy bosses for so many years? Or maybe it's the first time as an adult with a real job that actually really genuinely pays, you have to fill out your taxes. I remember that the first time I had to do that. I called my dad. I was like, what on earth is this? Is this in English? I mean, I love math. This doesn't make any sense at all. For others, it's, I think, probably when you get the first house or going, okay, how, how do you, again, you younger people, again, sorry, you are going to just go to YouTube and you'll never face this question. <laughs> For those of us that grew up just prior to YouTube or well before that, you call dad, dad, what on earth? How do I fix this? I have no idea what's happening in the house. How do I repair this? Or that moment with the first baby and you think, oh my goodness, why do these things not come with an instruction manual? Call mom. She obviously knows at least a little bit of what she's doing because I'm not dead. So she did at least a good enough job there. It's these moments of life where we kind of come into crisis and we begin to understand mom and dad just, they knew so much more than we realized growing up. Knew so much more than we believed they knew during college, right? College, they didn't know anything. We knew everything. The challenge that I think the Jews would have faced in reading the Gospel of Matthew is that they would have been in that kind of college phase that so many of us went through. We thought, well, we know all of the answers, We know how the world works. We're God's people. We've had the Old Testament. We've studied it. We've learned it. We have all of the answers. It's the pagans out there that are the fools. It's the the pagans out there that haven't read the Bible, the Old Testament. It's the pagans out there that don't know God's laws. The pagans out there that do not understand how the world operates. And much like the first baby or the first house or the first job or the first taxes, Matthew is trying to present them with their first interaction with the real Messiah. You've been reading about him since Genesis chapter 3. The one that God would provide who would fix sin. And you've gathered bits and pieces about his ministry all throughout the various Old Testament authors. They've almost all talked about him in some fashion. They've elucidated, illumined his ministry in some fashion. And the Jews would have kind of then pieced that together, mixed with some of their own misconceptions, and crafted a very specific understanding of who the Messiah was supposed to be. The same way that almost every single young couple that does premarital counseling says, oh yeah, we're not going to fight our first year of marriage because that's not what we do. And I laugh at them in their face. The good noble goal, but wow, you've got some really wrong misconceptions there. That's not how life works. In fact, actually, if you didn't fight during your first year of marriage, you probably have a bigger problem that needs some serious marriage counseling. You don't know how to talk to each other. You don't talk about what you're feeling. That's a big-time issue. 
The Jews here have, have crafted a misconception, this, this faulty idea of what the Messiah is. And now that Matthew's presenting it to them, there's this kind of moment of going, okay, well, what do we do? I mean, we, we've had the instruction manual. We've just been misreading it for so many years. Now, what do we do? And in this section, I think Matthew is kind of working, and certainly the Spirit of God, to kind of remind them that that gentle prodding, that gentle prompt to say, oh yeah, by the way, (laughs) you know this kind of intellectually, but you forget, God actually knows what he's doing. I know, I know, I know. You would say, I know this. But you forget, we do this all the time, forget that God actually knows what he's doing. Again, I've said this so many times where I think most of us tend to emotionally function thinking that God is just like me with maybe 25 points higher on his IQ. Forgetting that he's outside time and space and he sees all of creation laid out before him at the same time. He sees it all. (laughs) It's not an issue of him just being slightly smarter than I am and responding to events just with slightly better reaction time. No, he knows exactly what's going on. And this section, the end of chapter 2, is to, to prompt the Jews to kind of jog their memory to say, by the way, God knows exactly what he's doing. And the result here is that you really functionally have a a series of passages that are built around three Old Testament proofs. Where Matthew says, oh yes, by the way, you knew God knew what he, he was doing. But to remind you, when we go to talk about Jesus, you need to know the Old Testament explained who Jesus is. It's because God knows what he's doing We pick up in verse 13, kind of in the midst of the famous story of the we three kings that weren't three and weren't kings. Weren't necessarily really from the Orient, certainly not the way we define that term today. Uh, A group of wise magician, astronomer, scientist, uh, legal counselors that have come from most likely Iraq or Iran uh, and have come and pledged their loyalty, their fealty to the new king of the Jews, to Jesus the Christ. And they're warned uh, in a dream not to return to uh, Herod. They go back another way, verse 12. They're warned in a dream. They go uh, back to their land, their own country, a different route, not warning Herod of where Jesus is. And the problem is afoot. What is going to happen to Jesus? We have here the, the king of the Jews, Jesus Christ, who now at this point in his life, uh, has a royal court. That's what the Magi were, however many there are. He has a royal announcement. His birth was announced by the angels. He has his royal kingdom. He's king over the Jews. We know this. He is the high king. But inconveniently, is there is a king ruling in this geographical region who is not the high king. He's the under king. His name is Herod, and he is a notoriously cruel man. In fact, so notoriously cruel, I I actually made a mistake last week in my sermon. I I got confused. I was looking at the chart of all of his family members that he killed, and I missed the family members he didn't kill. The reason being is there's so many that he killed that I just lost them in the chart. I missed it. It's so many. I think there were three he didn't end up killing out of all of the dozens he did. 
He's at this point an old man, probably 69 or 70 years old, and he is not happy. He knows there's a new king. He knows that king poses a danger to his own reign for the however many months he might have left. He's an old man by that time. Again, 69, 70, not that old today. Very old in that time. And you can imagine he's going to go after this king. To give you, again, a sense of perspective as to who uh, this Herod is shortly after this interchange. Herod has a moment of despondency, a moment of depression, and takes a, a knife that he's been cutting food with and holds it to his neck to kill himself right there in his upper chamber. Uh, one of his distant relatives kind of sees him and runs to him and, and stops him and, and grabs him and keeps him from stabbing himself. The commotion is loud enough that everyone thinks that Herod is dead, at which point his son goes out and proceeds to begin to try to take over the kingdom immediately because Herod's dead. It's time for me to solidify my power. And so just in the few brief moments and hours or whatever that he has time to actually start solidifying his power, Herod perceives that's a threat. He walks out of his uh, palace, finds out his son has been doing that, and has him summarily executed that night. The guy who's actually supposed to replace him has done exactly what he's supposed to have done, and Herod has him killed. This man is extraordinarily brutal. It's introduced here, okay, what's going to happen then with this first Old Testament quote, verse 13. Now, when the Magi had departed, an angel of the Lord appears to Joseph. It's intriguing. Mary gets one vision. Joseph gets a series of them. He apparently hears at least three separate communications with the angels and how lovely that is and what a holy man. He responds correctly. The uh, angel appears to him and says, look, it's time. (laughs) Go somewhere else. Specifically, go to Egypt. Take the child and his mother and go. Stay there until I tell you. Why? Because Herod is going to go looking for the child and to do exactly what Herod would be expected to do. He's going to try to kill him. So Joseph picks up, takes the child and takes off and scampers down to Egypt. And in doing so, you see at the end there, verse 15, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Again, for us, as most of us, I guess many of us, New Testament Christians, that's not a phrase that kind of jumps out and grabs our ears and kind of screams into them to pay attention. I guess probably because many of us, our first interactions with God's word have come primarily through the New Testament or the creation narrative in Genesis 1. For the Jew, however, this would have been kind of, again, grabbing the ears, pulling your face in, and kind of screaming, pay attention to what's going on. Because it's an, it's an Old Testament proof that this is what God had planned from the beginning. This is what God had planned for hundreds of years when Hosea wrote that he had in mind. As part of this prophecy... Chapter 11, verse 1, that out of Egypt he would call his son. And in this case, (laughs) while he's being completely literal. And there's a beautiful thing that happening in this quote because Hosea chapter 11, verse 1 is uh, Hosea talking about his son and then also the nation of Israel. Kind of, in essence, this 
kind of reenactment that's taking place of this kind of reemerging pattern that God is building into the story of his people. And the reemerging pattern of it is that the Lord takes his people down into Egypt and eventually takes them out brings them back and returns them to the land. We know that's what happens with Israel literal, right? He takes them down through Joseph down into Egypt where they remain for a time. Now eventually they're enslaved there and then he brings them out in that kind of you know, world-defining, personality-defining, nation-defining event called the Exodus. All of kind of early Jewish life would have been thought about from the perspective of he brought us out of the land of Egypt. You think about that's how even the Ten Commandments are introduced. Who is our God? What do we know about our God? Well, here are the Ten Commandments. This is what tells us who he is. And even the preface to the Ten Commandments, he's the God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Here, highlighting the same thing as Jesus then, and even as a baby, fulfills prophecy in reenacting that journey. Traveling down to Egypt, remaining there for a time, and returning at God's command. And in doing so, he's showing off one of the, the dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of ways that Christ Jesus is a fulfillment of prophecy. So that when you read it, you would have thought, oh wow, this God knows what he's doing. This Jesus wasn't an accident. He, he wasn't a mistake. He wasn't just the next good effort in a long line of kind of failed messiahs. Maybe this one will take. No, this is the one that was planned from the very beginning. And in fact, actually, first kind of prophecy highlighting here, this God knows exactly what he's doing. In fact, he knows so much what he's doing that he knows how to protect his people. This God knows how to protect his people. I love how it highlights that, that even as the Christ is a child, now again, remembering he, he's fully human, he's fully baby, which means that he has all of the faculties and abilities and powers that a baby would have. I mean, he, he, he's not a baby that you know, flies around like Jack-Jack from the Incredibles or anything like that. Right? He's a human child. He hasn't learned to read yet. He hasn't read the scriptures. He doesn't know all of that. And here, intriguingly, God is providing even for the Messiah before the Messiah himself is able to understand what that provision looks like. Even before Christ and his humanity is even fully able to wrap his mind around what it means to be Messiah. God is protecting his child. He knows what he's doing. He's ordered it from before the foundation of the world, even to the point that he's canonized it, recording it in Scripture out of Egypt. I've called my son. I'm going to send him there for a reason. I'm going to protect him. I'm going to save his life, and then I'm going to bring him out. I'm going to use even a pagan nation like Egypt to do it. And many of us go, well, of course, Michael, I understand that. I've believed that all my life. I, I, I know that. You're not telling me anything I don't know. And I would say, I agree with you. The problem is that we intellectually know that about Christ, but then we immediately emotionally forget that about us. 
Intellectually, we understand that God knows the beginning from the end, that God understands creation, that God knows his perfect plan, and that God knows his his son Jesus, and that God is therefore able to protect him. But we forget that when any sort of difficulty hits our, our own life. When we have that spouse that's hurt our feelings again so deeply, that wound that you think is just, it's so deep that it just could never be healed. And to say, you know what? My God knows about this. He, he knows the beginning from the end. He, he knows in his perfect plan, this is exactly what he's done. And it's for a reason. In fact, even going so far as to protect me. I mean, if he preserved the life of Christ, I'm joined with Jesus. He's doing the same to me. Or when sickness comes upon us, either very, very serious sickness or even something lesser but feels serious, like if you ever get like a stomach flu or food poisoning, and you lose the will to live in about four hours of food poisoning, it seems. Surely God doesn't know what he's doing. He, he has no idea. He, he, why hasn't he protected me from this? And it's intriguing, how, again, how our thought process, we're, we're comfortable saying God knows the beginning from the end, that he's ordered all of creation to protect his son Jesus, but we immediately forget that the second we get stuck in the meat grinder. Forgetting, no, 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 he's ordered it the same way he protects us. Likewise, we are joined with Jesus and Jesus with us. If he has been faithful to Christ, he will be faithful to us. God knows our lives and is protecting his people. I would humbly make a very political application here. I I do believe there is, in some circles in the church in America right now, great fear over the coming months as to what the church will be and certainly what the church will be politically. And uh, I certainly acknowledge that there are great complexities to this. This is not a simple relationship between church and state that can be reduced to just, you know, a couple of brief sentences. Instead, I would make this application right here. We need not be afraid. Our God knows what he's doing. I mean, he was able to write in Scripture hundreds of years prior to the arrival of Jesus, planning out perfectly that he would send an angel to take Joseph to take Jesus away to Egypt, to have the pagans protect Jesus from the false king of the Jews. If God is so mighty as to do that, and so faithful as to do that, and so good as to do that, do we think for a moment that he would be any less faithful to his promises to his people today? Do we think he would be any less faithful to his church today that he will guard and keep and protect us? We don't have to be afraid of the political climate. We don't have to be afraid of elections in November. We don't have to be afraid of whether or not the state's going to persecute us or any of those sorts of things. We don't have to be afraid of any of it. 
Because our God is keeping us. He's governing us. He's faithful to us. If he can do this to Jesus, he will do it to us, for we are his beloved children. He'll protect us. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't have difficulty. It doesn't mean it's always going to be fun. (laughs) In fact, that's actually the point. It's to safeguard our minds that we know, even in the worst of times when we feel the most discouraged and we feel the most like giving up, God knows what he's doing. It's not like a joke with the young parents who don't have an instruction manual or, man, how much of life do you spend going, I have no idea what I'm doing. As long as I don't kill the kid, that's the best I got, right? It's a good day. No idea. It's not how God works. He's infinitely wise and he is committed to protecting his people. The story does continue. Quickly, apparently, as I look at the clock. <clears throat> Herod, obviously not uh, a complete moron, realizes, ah, wise men aren't returning. The Magi, they're going back elsewhere. So, as you would guess with him, he becomes furious. Uh, furious. He's filled with rage. Uh, and what he does, well, he makes sure that this baby who wouldn't even have time to grow up with his age, you know, Herod being so old uh, for the time, instead sins uh, to have all of the children who were two and under killed. Now, this doesn't mean Jesus is two. It means that Herod is uh, giving himself a wide margin, a wide berth. He's saying, look, if the kid's two months old, we'll just cut it off at two years old, kill all the boys underneath that, and that'll cover it. And again, recognizing the size of Bethlehem and the region around, we're probably talking a good guess, maybe at most a dozen or two kids. We're not talking at this point, again, remembering it's towns and cities were much smaller at this point in human history. We're not talking like the movies would have you believe thousands of children massacred. Uh, Probably not likely at this point. Probably a very small number comparatively. But even as he's done that, it's interesting that Matthew then highlights in verse 17, look, this is to fulfill another one of God's prophecies, a prophecy that was written hundreds of years in the future from this, I mean, in the past from this, back foretelling this future. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. And immediately we've heard this quoted dozens and dozens and dozens of times, and we say, and I I immediately don't care, Michael, because that's not a verse that gets to me, right? I I don't memorize Jeremiah for my devotions. Most of us, at least, don't memorize Jeremiah 31. It's not a passage that is in our list of favorite passages, and it, it probably should be, honestly, but it's a great one. What he's referencing here is significant with Ramah. Ramah was a a very significant place in the life of Israel for, uh, if you remember, when they're traveling, Rachel, uh, the beloved wife, perishes along the way. And Rachel is, uh, she was the favorite wife. She's got the one that, you know, has not as many children, but the children she does have are significant. She dies in a trip between Bethlehem and Ramah. It's about a 10-mile journey, five miles from Bethlehem to Jerusalem, five miles from Jerusalem to Ramah. She dies en route, and they bury her beside the road in Bethlehem. 
so that when she arri- when the when the you know the caravan arrives at Rama, it is filled with grief. It's a city that is noted for weeping and lamentation because it is the place connected with Rachel's death. Now, interestingly, in Jeremiah thirty-one, he's taking that place of of sorrow. Right? A similar illustration would be in the South, referencing any place in Sherman's March. A place that is just immediately, it brings to mind tears everywhere. Taking this place of sorrow and, and personifying Rachel as being alive again in Jeremiah 31. And instead she's grieving over the nations as they're invaded. Ramah was on the dividing line between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom and could be kind of used as a reference point for both. And so in Jeremiah 31, what's happening here, a a voice is heard in Ramah. Well, it's a voice of lamentation. We would expect that. That's what Ramah is noted for in the Old Testament. It's Rachel weeping for her children. Now, why would Rachel be weeping for her children? All of her children are fine. Well, because what she's weeping for in Jeremiah is uh, the, the foreshadowing of the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah both being invaded and taken away from the land. That's why it says there she's refused to be comforted because they are no more. She's grieving because... The northern kingdom and the southern kingdom are going to be invaded and be, be destroyed. Now, interestingly, Matthew here kind of does a little bit of a, a, a coupling, a pairing, and saying, look, in, in Jeremiah 31, Rachel's grieving because the loss of, of Israel and the loss of Judah. And now, guess what? Even with the arrival of the Christ, we're grieving not for the loss of the nations, but for the loss of the boys of the nation. In this way, this arrival of the Christ, there's grief, there's sorrow over the loss of God's people. And I love again how it showcases just so carefully and so clearly that God knows what he's doing. Is he, he even is highlighting, he, he understands the realities of sin. The brokenness of the world, the sorrow and sadness that comes from living in a world with the fall and living in a world with the curse. This Christ, this Messiah is going to step into a world that is filled with sin. And intriguingly, he's not going to close his eyes to it. And, and by that, I mean not that he's going to seek out sin to look at. but it's, He's not like he's going to act like it's a perfect world. I think sometimes, Christians, this has been our response to the world, and I'm going to contend it's an ungodly response. To go out and interact with a world that is under the fall, that is under the curse, that is filled with sin, and to act like you know, the, three, the three monkeys, right? The, the see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. To act like evil doesn't exist in the world. To act like it's a perfect place with perfect people, with perfect conditions to act like there is no sin. The reality is, I think actually what's setting up here is that because God understands the world so well, the church is the one place that we don't need to be afraid of acknowledging sin. We know sin. We know the story of sin. We know how it came to be. We know its, its inner workings. We don't, we don't have to shy away from acknowledging its existence. We don't have to be afraid of the reality of sin. 
You realize I think that's what so much of the world is, is wrestling through, is it, it doesn't have a really good category for the existence of sin. I think that's actually really what Western civilization has been struggling with since the Enlightenment. We don't have a good category for what to do with sin. If we admit that sin exists, then we admit that we need a Savior. So we then, therefore, try to say that sin doesn't exist. But the problem is it all breaks down. Instead, here in this uh, reference, we get to see God understands the, the reality of the world. He understands sin, and it's with that backdrop that he's sending his Messiah, that he's sending his Son. And then final quote, lastly, uh, after Herod dies, an angel appears to Joseph again. Joseph returns and takes the Christ child back, but uh, Archelaus was such a terrible, wicked man, just like his father. He's awful, wretched human. Uh, instead of returning um, to the place where they might live that would be very close to his governance, uh, they move a little bit further away to uh, Nazareth so that uh, they would be in a slightly safer place, not exactly governed by this king, a little bit further away, and in doing so, fulfill that Christ would be called a Nazarene. Now, this is an incredibly complicated quote is here. Uh, Matthew's actually making a word play, intentionally kind of misspelling a word to pull together a bunch of different references all at once. Highlighting the place, Nazareth, certainly, that's being highlighted there. Uh, probably hinting at the Nazarite vow, that this child would be set apart uh, under a unique call of holiness and obedience, which Jesus is. But then also hinting at uh, Isaiah 11, verse 1, that he would be uh, the branch of Jesse. He would be this king of David uh, that would reign uh, and would reign forever. And I love what he's highlighting here is you see there's a logical progression to all three quotes. The first one is God knows what he's doing to protect his people. The second one then highlights, and God understands the reality of sin. And the third one is, and therefore God is providing a Messiah. You see, Matthew is outlining in Old Testament quotes the heart of the gospel. God's protecting his people he understands sin, and the only solution is Jesus Christ. I would humbly suggest the challenge for us is, as we go about our business is to follow that pattern. To be reminded that God is protecting his people. To be reminded that we do live in a world that is filled with sin. But Jesus is the only answer. He is the only answer. And I know we believe that intellectually. But just check the next time your temper flares up or your discouragement flares up. See if you're actually working through that faith, that belief that Jesus is the, the solution to this. He's been provided. God will care for me even now. Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus who is the solution to sin. We ask, O oh God, that you would fill us with Christ for his sake. Amen.